Kia ora, I'm Emile Donovan. And today on The Detail... In Denmark, a decision to cull all its mink because of the spread of coronavirus continues to shock the nation. Danish authorities were worried that a mutated form of coronavirus found in mink could potentially hamper the effectiveness of a future vaccine. Denmark is looking at culling all of its 17 million mink after the discovery they have a mutated form of coronavirus. So, are we at panic stations? Not quite. Mutation is normal for any living thing. Any one individual mutation is is generally not cause for concern. But it's certainly something to think about. COVID-19 is just one of the hundreds of thousands of animal-borne viruses which have the potential to affect humans. So what has this experience taught us about how we interact with animals and how can we better respond when another pandemic inevitably surfaces. The things that they list will include early detection, having good healthcare infrastructure. For me, those are all ways to detect something early, but it's not prevention. Mark Dalder is a political reporter for newsroom.co.nz, and I began by asking him about the kind of freaky-sounding news that a mutated version of COVID-19 had been discovered in commercially farmed mink in Europe. Taking a step back, every time there is news around mutations of the coronavirus, around new strains or variants, uh, people get quite a bit worried. I think there's a sense from our pop culture understanding of viruses that when things mutate, that means they become worse or stronger or just more scary in general. Um, So to begin with, mutation is normal for any uh, sort of living thing or viruses, which are not a living thing. The flu virus, for example, mutates quite frequently and and quite quickly, which is why you have a new flu vaccine that's developed each year based on the sort of mutations that are most prevalent in the flu season or that scientists think will be most prevalent in the flu season to come. The coronavirus that we're dealing with here mutates quite a lot less frequently than the flu. On average, it mutates about 24 times a year. And any one individual mutation is is generally not cause for concern. It's unlikely that a single mutation would have a, a major functional impact on how the virus replicates itself and how it affects humans. Okay, so the whole, the, the idea of mutated coronavirus sounds crazy and scary, but this is a natural part of a virus's kind of journey and the fact that it's mutated is nothing surprising necessarily. It just sounds pretty pretty freaky. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, if you want to get into the science of it, um, the virus is essentially a 30,000 long string of letters. Each letter represents a sort of different chemical base. In DNA, we have four specific letters in RNA, which is what the coronavirus is made of. Um, it's, it's three of the same bases and then one different one. And Every time it replicates itself, it has to get each one of those letters right. And um, like any of us, it every once in a while makes a typo. The interesting thing about this virus is it has an ability to correct those typos, and it often does. But every once in a while, one slips through. So that's why it's generally slower at properly mutating than other viruses is because it has this self-correction mechanism. But that's a, a perfectly normal thing to have happen. Mutations in and of themselves are not a concern. And generally, they can, in fact, be helpful. In New Zealand, we've been able to use genomes uh, and genetic sequencing to track how the virus is evolving as it moves from person to person, and then to make connections between someone who might seem like they're not connected to the cluster, 
that you're investigating at a, at a given point, but the genome shows that it, in fact, is. Mm. So any small genetic variant, one or two mutations, is, is just called a variant, not a new strain. You only call something a strain if you have reason to believe that it's actually functionally different than the, the original virus. Okay. So if it was a different strain, then, then it would be considerably more scary because it would be actually behaving in a different way. Is that right? That's correct. So on the mink mutations in particular, there's, I think, a bit of debate and a bit of uncertainty around whether these would be considered new strains. Part of it is that there's just not been a lot of information released or, or a lot of time to research the impacts of the specific mutations we've seen that have developed in these mink and then jumped back to humans. But a handful of lab uh, analyses have indicated that it might be better at getting through what are called neutralizing antibodies, which are one of the sort of building blocks of our immune system. It seems like one of these mutations may have lent the virus a bit of a better uh, ability to evade and, and, and get past these antibodies. But that's in a lab setting uh, where you're essentially doing it in a Petri dish. Whether that actually happens in a real human body and in a real world scenario, which is a lot, lot, lot more complex, that has yet to be determined. So COVID-19 got into mink, it's mutated, but don't worry, it isn't a COVID super strain, it isn't the end of the world as we know it. So why is this a big deal? Well, two reasons. It might hamper the effectiveness of a vaccine, more on that in a few minutes. But first, let's talk about what Denmark's planned response was. I think initially there was some concern and there was a sort of small call of the affected populations. But when this concern was raised about the possibility of a mutation that would have a better chance of, of defeating the human immune system, Denmark made the decision to cull all of their mink, which is 17 million. Yeah, the plan was to, well, to essentially kill 17 million mink. This is sort of like what we did to help stop the spread of Mycoplasma bovis among cattle. It's estimated we'll kill about 150,000 cattle through that program. In Denmark, though... That has since been put on hold. There appear to be, A, some um, sort of legal and constitutional issues, and B, the opposition there has, has said they oppose it. So they're, I think, still trying to sort out exactly how many they will call, or if there's legislation that needs to be passed to allow them to do all of them. But already about 2 million mink had been called at the point that the overall program was called off. Wow. That, that sounds like quite an extreme reaction. Is the scientific consensus that that action is justified, justifiable? Everyone who I've spoken with about this, uh, a range of sort of public health experts and virologists and, and people who are experts in, in genomes and genome sciences, have agreed that, you know, it seems like a big deal, which it is, but it is justified by the circumstances. But those circumstances are a bit less about the specific mutations that have come out of the mink and a bit more about just the possibility of the virus spreading and continually mutating through 17 million mink and the chance of actually developing something that could be a very serious mutation or a very serious strain. The first thing is it shows how easily some of these viruses, not all of them, but some viruses, can switch between species. That's David Heyman, a professor of infectious disease ecology at Massey University. He's part of a team of scientists who authored a major report for the United Nations Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, looking at what the COVID experience has taught us about how we can manage and prevent future animal-hosted viruses. 
COVID itself or the coronavirus has already jumped species. We know it can infect others. So what's interesting with the mink situation is that it has jumped species and it, it is persisting in those mink farms. The other thing that that does is, I mean, it shows that we are farming wildlife in large numbers. I mean, those mink are basically being farmed for fur. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a large number of farms in Europe, and we often think of kind of wildlife trade as, as being a, something that happens in the tropics or other developing countries, but these, these are in um, high-income European countries, and these animals are being farmed for fur. So actually they're all going to be killed for our own purposes anyway, uh, and we have to think about what we're doing and why we're doing that. The other then issue is that these farms are now potentially acting as a reservoir. So even if you could control it in the human population, you then have a mink uh, infection. And that in itself is a concern. I mean, I say arguably you can kill, which is what they're proposing to do, kill all those minks from the farm. But that has some ethical issues. But I'd I'd argue there are already ethical issues around having those animals in farms for fur anyway. And, and then the other issues around something like mink and the circulation of these viruses in the new host is that they can mutate, adapt, and, um, you know, we don't know the consequences of those mutations and adaptations. So um, sometimes they're totally harmless. Um, sometimes they might create an infection that, in this case, can still then infect people, but it might infect them slightly differently. So one of the concerns here is that um, this infection wouldn't be preventable through immunisation, for example. And, and there's not a lot of strong evidence for that, but um, it just gives you an idea of what can happen. I guess on one hand it's, you know, it's good that we know that this has happened and that we're sort of taking action. On the other hand, the action we've decided to take, although it's on hold at the moment, it's to sort of slaughter, you know, 17 million animals, which is, you would think, you know, kind of a morally questionable thing to do. Most of the people I spoke with weren't super keen to get into the the ethics of the situation, but there are, I guess, broader ethical questions to be asked about the raising and slaughtering of mink in the first place. It's not exactly a territory that I've spent too much time thinking about. I think broadly the, the consensus is... You know, this is an unfortunate situation. It's one that we would have wanted to avoid in the first place. Um, but but this is the best option we have given the situation we're in now. Um, but it does sort of raise questions around our overall interactions with the animal world as humans and how that might put us at risk for disease transmission of COVID-19 and of other diseases. Yeah, because, I mean, a UN report into this notes there are, what, nearly 850,000 undiscovered diseases existing in animal hosts which could be transferred to humans. And the thing about that is if our plan of dealing with a situation like that is to round up all of the animals that might be the hosts of this and just kind of kill them, that um, that is... I mean, it's the most human thing ever, I guess, in a sense, isn't it? It's kind of bleak, though, right? Yeah, I think um, I think the way you go about doing it in the future is trying to make sure that you're keeping animals in, in conditions where, A, they're less likely to contract diseases, B, they're less likely to transmit it to other animals that they're, they're kept with, and C, that, that they're less likely to pass those diseases on to humans. There are ways to farm swine and chickens and so on without making those sort of super conducive, super spreading type factory farms for bird flu and, and pig flu, uh, which is you know what we have going on right now. The, the report that you've mentioned from the UN notes that there are five new diseases emerging in people every year, and, quote, any one of which has the potential to spread and become pandemic. 
they note that we have an issue with our extremely close relation to both domesticated animals kept in cramped conditions and wild animals. We have an issue with how much we interact with them and how little of that is controlled from a disease or infection uh, perspective. And we know, looking at past diseases uh, and viruses, that, that this is a problem. You know, Ebola came from the animal world. In the summer of 1976, a mysterious epidemic suddenly struck two Central African towns, killing the majority of its victims. Scientists believe fruit bats to be its natural carriers, but just how it is transmitted to humans remains unknown. HIV-AIDS came from the animal world. Scientists obviously focusing on the sort of West Central Africa were looking at where the virus could have jumped from. I mean, the most likely thing is that it would have jumped from an animal source. And it soon became apparent that primates carried viruses that were actually quite similar to HIV. And eventually found a virus that was pretty similar in chimpanzees. SARS, MERS and this new coronavirus, all from the animal world. These are issues because, uh, you know, these emerge as human populations expand as our cities expand into the wilderness and as uh, you know, climate change and other natural pressures push wild populations closer to, to human civilization. Mm. So it's both about sort of modern farming techniques and what that sort of means for our interactions with animals and, and the context in which we interact with them, but also the idea that we are, what, pushing into areas of the natural world where humans haven't been very often and that has an impact as well. Have I got you right there? Yeah. So, you know, you've got a, a, a few different threats. The threat from domesticated animals is largely around things like avian flu and swine flu. Pigs in particular can take in various strains of flu and, and then sort of meld those into a new one that they then pass back to humans. But there are new and undiscovered diseases. Those are less likely to be in domesticated animals. Those are more likely to be in wild animals. You know, AIDS, for example, was likely transmitted to the human population through the consumption of, of primates as bushmeat. Um, and that's not a domesticated animal. That's a, that's a wild animal that was eaten that way. And that sort of thing becomes more and more common as people find less and less ways to get food sustainably and healthily and have to rely on things like bushmeat in places where population pressures are so high and where quality of life is so low. I mean, there's several things that farming can impact the likelihood of disease emergence. And for example, one of those is that we highlight in the report is simply the clearing of habitat for farms. And as you clear, you're moving um, both people and the domestic animals into space where there were wildlife, but you're increasing the chances of contact between domestic animals and wildlife. And those themselves can act like the mink, um, even though the mink got it from us, but they, they can act as a reservoir. They can act as a, an interface where an, an infection go from wildlife to domestic animals and then later to people. And that's been shown in several different scenarios, so Hendry in Australia and Nipper in um, Southeast Asia. So those things can happen, but then the intensification of agriculture itself, the way that we manage um, domestic animals, you know, you're having very genetically similar animals that are potentially stressed in, in high densities. And these are perfect populations for viral infections to spread. And one of the problems is that then you get amplification of the virus and that can, uh, again, lead to humans being infected who have contact with those. And there's other things that can happen. So, for example, some of the flu viruses have emerged after mixing. And if you get, if you get two infections mixing in the same 
pig, for example, you can get reassortment and you can get the emergence of a new type of flu virus. So, so these are all the consequences that can happen. So I think looking at how we farm and trying to reduce intensification, ideally, I mean, we have to balance that. We're trying to feed people and food security. Yeah. But part of food security is improving human health, but also animal health. And so I think, yeah, we really need to look at what we're doing in the farming space globally to try to uh, both improve animal welfare, but also reduce uh, the chances of these infections emerging. Yeah, I mean, I was going to point that out that, you know, it's, I, I suppose it's all well and good to point out the drawbacks or the risks of intensified farming, but intensified farming is also what allows us to feed billions and billions of people in the world. And we don't want to be paying 300 bucks for a roast chicken, you know? Yeah, and, and no, I totally agree. And that is one of the balances that we, we've tried to um, highlight in this report is it's like use of wildlife in general, say, for food or for trade. Like we're aware that in some places we're placing uh, the use of wild animals for something actually could be detrimental, right? So if you, if you have people using wildlife, it actually may prevent them clearing tropical forests and, and let's, let's all assume that clearing tropical forests is a bad thing. It's bad for soil quality, um, it's bad for um, water quality, etc. and biodiversity. So let's assume that you don't want to do that. So, you know, there are reasons that you might want people to continue to use forests, for example, or to use wildlife. And, and the replacement with domesticated animals would be bad. But equally, we know that... Um, wildlife trade and wildlife use is a high-risk thing to do because those wild, wild animals have these novel infections. So it's that trade-off. Now, we, we in the report have looked at things like the pet trade, and actually there's billions of dollars worth of pet trade that involves many millions of animals around the world. So that, you think, well, that's, that's likely unnecessary. So I think it's about... You know, we're not recommending that all these things stop um, and intensification of agriculture might be um, critical, but actually, you know, perhaps we can look at ways we can intensify more of the uh, crops and veg vegetable production and less of the animal production, for example. Another really interesting point in, in, in your report is noting that, you know, the majority of responses to COVID from governments have been to, and health authorities have been to focus on response and containment and right. your report says that we should be focusing more on prevention. I want to, can, can you elaborate a bit yeah. more on that? It's something we've been saying for a long time. When we've talked around the world actually we've gone to talk and you hear particularly from the biomedical um, area which I come from um, people will talk about right the way to prevent the next emerging infectious disease is and the things that they list will include early detection so it's like having infectious disease surveillance in high-risk places it's having good healthcare infrastructure it's um, having good diagnostic uh, capacity in laboratories um, for me those are all ways to detect something early but it's not prevention and, and one of the things that we tried to say in this report is we think there are ways that you can prevent the emergence events in the first place and not just rapidly detect them after they've happened. So um, there are some things that we have suggested in this report that governments and people might do that will actually reduce the risk of that initial infectious disease emergence event, so that initial transmission of a virus from, you know, a bird, a monkey, a bat, to 
a person. That requires thought and planning, and it's things around thinking about preventing encroachment of farms into um, tropical forests. It's, it's reducing the trade in high-risk wildlife. You know, it's thinking about where your food and where the things that you buy come from because that leads to mining or to logging somewhere that might seem a long way off but actually is going to increase the chances of people encroaching and using wildlife and and leading to disease emergence. So so we think those are better ways of preventing an infection emerging that also have additional benefits like preventing biodiversity crisis, so species extinction, like preventing things like climate change because you're keeping intact forests and other things. So, so we think there's almost win-win scenarios, but it, that, that they're actually focused on prevention and not rapid response or rapid detection and response. That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so other people can find us too. Jeremy Ansell was the engineer for this episode. Alexia Russell was the producer. And thanks to David Heyman and Mark Dalder. Matewa.